Welcome back to Books with Bert. I'm Bert Folsom, and I'm talking today about my book, FDR Goes to War, which I co-authored with my wife, Anita Folsom. But before we get into today's episode, I want to remind you that if you like my podcast and you want to learn more wonderful and forgotten stories in American history, don't forget to rate and review my podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get podcasts. The episode today is called World War II, FDR, and Textbook Bias. And the book which I'm reviewing today is the sequel to my book, New Deal or Raw Deal. And again, it's entitled FDR Goes to War. We will be looking at World War II. Uh, When we look at World War II, hey, it starts for the United States with Pearl Harbor. And what I'd like to do is talk about one of the leading, if not the leading, textbook in American history in the United States. It's entitled The American Pageant. It is co-authored by David Kennedy, professor at Stanford, and Elizabeth Cohen, who holds an endowed chair at Harvard University. One of the reasons I select this textbook to use for the podcast is that it is probably the best-selling textbook in American history. It's used widely in AP classes, that's advanced placement classes in high schools. And it is also written by two authors who are both experts on FDR. Kennedy has written a book Freedom from Fear, which won the Pulitzer Prize and is the story of the Roosevelt administration during the New Deal years and also World War II. Elizabeth Cohen has also written a book on FDR, and she has been a Pulitzer Prize finalist. So these two authors, Professor Kennedy at Stanford and Professor Cohen at Harvard, are highly esteemed within their profession And the textbook that they wrote should reflect expertise on FDR. But as we'll see, there's some real problems. Let me start with the Pearl Harbor issue. The edition I'm using for the American pageant is the 15th edition, one of the more recent editions. But textbooks rarely change from edition to edition. So this is probably accurate for the future edition, which they will be writing. On page 824, they say the following. Quote, officials in Washington, having cracked the top secret code of the Japanese, knew that Tokyo's decision was for war. No one in high authority in Washington seems to have believed that the Japanese were either strong enough or foolhardy enough to strike Hawaii. End quote. Notice that the textbook gives almost no blame to FDR for the disaster at Pearl Harbor, even though the United States had broken the Japanese secret code and knew an attack was imminent. Kennedy and Cohen, in their textbooks, assure us that, quote, no one in high authority in Washington seems to have believed that the Japanese had the ability to launch such an attack. This statement is wrong. Many people very high in the Roosevelt administration, especially the U.S. Navy, absolutely believed a surprise attack at Pearl Harbor was a possibility. 
But FDR disagreed with them and he removed them from positions of power. A great example of this is the case of Admiral Joe Richardson, who was the commander of the U.S. Pacific Fleet in Pearl Harbor. Unlike Roosevelt, Richardson did not underestimate the Japanese, and he studied them and the dangerous Pearl Harbor location very thoroughly. Richardson pointed out that a simulated aerial attack had been conducted by the Japanese in 1932 to attack Pearl Harbor, and it proved that torpedo planes could cripple any fleet stationed there, even before Roosevelt ordered the Pacific Fleet to stay at Pearl Harbor indefinitely. Richardson had protested that keeping the fleet there posed a danger to every ship. He tried to monitor the military movements of the Japanese to give the United States time to vacate Pearl Harbor in case of danger. Richardson, after writing many letters more than a year before the attack on Pearl Harbor, was ordered to Washington to meet with the president. At this meeting, Richardson strongly recommended to Roosevelt that he move the Pacific Fleet from Pearl Harbor back to San Francisco immediately. When Roosevelt dismissed any Pearl Harbor concerns, the frustrated Richardson said this, quote, Mr. President, I feel I must tell you that the senior officers of the Navy do not have the trust and confidence in the civilian leadership of this country that is essential for the successful prosecution of a war in the Pacific. Roosevelt replied, Joe, you just don't understand that this is an election year, 1940. And there are certain things that can't be done no matter what until the election is over and won, end quote. When the election was over and FDR was safely reelected to his third term, he fired Richardson from command of the Pacific Fleet and installed a lackey, Admiral Kimmel, to take his place. Kimmel agreed with FDR that Pearl Harbor was safe. And the rest is history. We had a dramatic Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941. Roosevelt bears much blame for this disastrous attack that killed 2,403 Americans. It sank or damaged eight battleships and 188 airplanes were destroyed. The United States took a very long time to recover from this terrible start to the war. Roosevelt's decision to override Admiral Richardson was terrible, but Kennedy and Cohen, in their textbook, The American Pageant, protect Roosevelt and shield the students from learning anything about Roosevelt's error in judgment. What about the Japanese Americans? Many people know they were unfortunately concentrated in relocation camps. We had 110,000 Japanese herded during World War II. Did Roosevelt bear any blame for this? Well, the textbook makes an effort to sort of shield him from blame. Here's what they say. 
the Washington top command, fearing that they, that is the Japanese, might act as saboteurs for Japan in case of invasion, forcibly herded them together in concentration camps, though about two-thirds of them were American-born citizens. This brutal precaution was both unnecessary and unfair, as the loyalty and combat record of Japanese Americans proved to be admirable. But a wave of post-Pearl Harbor hysteria, backed by a long historical swell of anti-Japanese prejudice on the West Coast, temporarily robbed many Americans of their good sense and their sense of justice. The textbook is correct in that the persecution of the Japanese Americans was unfair. But the textbook is misleading in that it lets Roosevelt off the hook for the responsibility of this terrible decision. The Japanese Americans were small in number and therefore easy for Roosevelt to persecute. Notice that in this whole paragraph in the textbook, Kennedy and Cohen give no blame to FDR, and they say he approved of it as a military necessity. Actually, Roosevelt deserves most of the blame for this tragic denial of civil liberties to this whole group of mostly native-born Americans. Even Roosevelt's Attorney General, Francis Biddle, strongly opposed Roosevelt's strategy of herding the Japanese Americans as a group into relocation camps and denying them their civil liberties. FDR even knew from his own investigations that most Japanese Americans were loyal citizens. J. Edgar Hoover, the head of the FBI, had the best espionage network in the country. He always told FDR that the Japanese Americans were overwhelmingly loyal and should not be forcibly removed from their homes. J. Edgar Hoover, the head of the FBI, stated it this way, The necessity for mass evacuation is based primarily upon public and political pressure rather than on factual data. Once the Japanese were exiled to relocation centers, and by the way, those are relocation centers, not concentration camps, as the textbook falsely states. The return of the Japanese Americans would be closely tied to the politics of the 1944 presidential election when Roosevelt is running for a fourth term. Many people wanted the innocent Japanese Americans to be released. But in 1944, election year politics seemed to have dictated that issue. After a cabinet meeting, Harold Ickes, Secretary of the Interior, confided in his diary, quote, My expectation now is that this issue of releasing the Japanese Americans will continue to be evaded until after the election. He was right. When pressed on the ongoing incarceration of Japanese Americans, Assistant Secretary of State John McCloy said this, quote, there is a disposition not to crowd action too closely upon the heels of the election on November 7th. Sure enough, on election day, Roosevelt won re-election. He carried the state of California, where so many of the Japanese Americans were from, and Democrats won four new seats in the House of Representatives in the state of California. Three days after the election, 
At the first cabinet meeting, Roosevelt announced the end of the persecution of Japanese Americans. He asked his Secretary of War to write up a plan for their release. The textbook, The American Pageant, is misleading in attaching no blame to Franklin Roosevelt for this tragic denial of civil liberties to the Japanese Americans. What about black Americans? The army segregated blacks from the regular armed forces. Did Roosevelt help? The textbook is going to say emphatically yes, but the real answer is closer to being no. Let me read what the textbook says, and I quote, Black leader A. Philip Randolph, head of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, threatened a massive Negro march on Washington in 1941 to demand equal opportunities for blacks in war jobs and in the armed forces. Roosevelt's response was to issue an executive order forbidding discrimination in defense industries, end quote. That's what the textbook says, but here is a good lesson for students in how Roosevelt and other politicians operate. Roosevelt held black Americans in low esteem. He did not openly persecute them, but at his Hyde Park estate in New York, that is his home, he segregated white and black staff members. He also segregated his staff at his polio treatment facility at Warm Springs, Georgia. And his polio facility was for whites only. At the White House, according to historian Bruce Bartlett, quote, Roosevelt maintained Woodrow Wilson's policy of segregation among the household staff, and he even banned black reporters from White House press conferences. The textbooks, by the way, give no indication of this, either the textbook by Kennedy and Cohen or other mainstream textbooks. Let me make one more point. Also, in Roosevelt's first chance to make an appointment to the Supreme Court, he selected Senator Hugo Black of Alabama, who was a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Black spoke at Klan rallies, marched in their parades, and in his campaign to win a Senate seat, he chose as his campaign manager the Grand Dragon of the Alabama Ku Klux Klan. But even though black people did not personally interest Franklin Roosevelt, they were a large enough voting block to attract his attention. He refused to integrate the American military during World War II, but he was nervous about Union leader A. Philip Randolph and the support he might muster for a march for integration on the streets of Washington, D.C. So Roosevelt helped black Americans by issuing, as the textbook said, an executive order forbidding discrimination in defense industries. Thus, in this case, black Americans exerted pressure on a reluctant politician to promote the noble goal of equality of opportunity and to improve the right of black Americans to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The textbook does mention that executive order. It omits the other part of Roosevelt's racial attitudes. Let's look at what the textbook here, the American pageant, says about what ended the war. On page 837, Kennedy and Cohen say this, quote, 
But in America, the war invigorated the economy and lifted the country out of a decade-long depression. The flood of war dollars, not the relatively modest rivulet of New Deal spending, at last swept the plague of unemployment from the land. War, not enlightened social policy, cured the depression. Well, Kennedy and Cohen are wrong again. Their textbook notion that, quote, war cured the depression, end quote, is in fact one of the biggest myths in American economic history. Like many damaging myths, there is some truth to it. After all, before the war, the United States had a decade of double-digit unemployment. After the United States entered the war, suddenly Americans had jobs, factories had orders, and the economy was booming. But that so-called recovery is superficial. The quality of American life during the war was very precarious. Overseas, our soldiers risked their lives every day. More than one million of the 12 million soldiers sent overseas were either killed or wounded. Those who survived spent their time destroying billions of dollars worth of property and expensive weapons. At home, food was rationed, luxuries removed, taxes high, and work dangerous. Is that really the stuff of a recovery? If it is, then the solution to any nation's economic slump is to declare war, draft millions of soldiers, make expensive weapons, and use them to destroy property and people. FDR himself recognized the war was only a short-term fix and a very costly one at that. The national debt had skyrocketed five-fold during the war from $49 billion to almost $260 billion. In other words, we borrowed money to make weapons and pay soldiers. How would we pay that money back? And what would happen after the war, when 12 million troops came home and when factories no longer would be making guns, bullets, tanks, and ships? That was the big question when the war ended. Now, after World War I, for example, unemployment had skyrocketed. Would the Great Depression, with veterans in bread lines, return after World War II? Although Roosevelt died before the war ended, he and many others predicted that another depression might return when the soldiers came home and began looking for jobs. The solution, Congress concluded, was not in more government programs. These programs, Roosevelt's programs, although they won votes for Roosevelt, did not produce economic recovery in the 1930s. Why should they work any better after the war? Instead, when the war ended, conservative congressmen, both Republicans and Democrats, united on the Revenue Act of 1945, which slashed income and corporate tax rates. That gave businessmen an incentive to invest in new products. As J.J. Nance, vice president of Zenith Radio, explained, we must create and sustain a desire for goods to steadily increase competition. With tax rates cuts, the incentive for entrepreneurs to invest finally occurred. That not only meant more houses, cars, and radios, but new products like Xerox copy machines, televisions, McDonald's restaurants, and Holiday Inn motels. Employment expanded and the Great Depression did not return. It was a private enterprise recovery. Furthermore, as federal spending was decreased, the United States had new budget surpluses and we began to pay off our national debt from the war. 
With Roosevelt off the scene, the U.S. economy was recovering. The textbook completely omits that. They claim the recovery is due to massive spending during the war. They miss the recovery that occurred when free enterprise was boosted after the war and tax rates were reduced and the entrepreneurs at last could produce products that got the U.S. out of the Great Depression. The final point that I want to make today, I want to turn over to my wife, Anita Folsom, who was the co-author of my book, FDR Goes to War. She's very knowledgeable on the situation with the Japanese after the war. And that is also an area that is not well covered by most textbooks. In the case of the textbook, The American Pageant, it's not particularly well covered. You, you look at uh, another Pulitzer Prize winning author, uh, Eric Foner. He has a textbook called Give Me Liberty. In his textbook, he holds the United States somewhat responsible for dropping the atomic bomb. He says the Japanese fought ferociously while being driven from one Pacific island after another. An American invasion of Japan, some advisors warned Truman, might cost as many as 250,000 American lives. But dropping the atomic bomb was controversial. Some officials had already communicated a willingness to end the war if the Emperor Hirohito could remain on the throne. So in other words, the decision to drop the atomic bomb is sometimes criticized. And in the case of the Kennedy and Cohen textbook, the good things that the United States did for the Japanese are not included in their textbook. I want Anita to cover this area. She knows more about it than I do. I'm happy to discuss today the history of U.S. foreign relations with Japan during and after World War II because so much is misunderstood about that. Criticism of the U.S. at the end of World War II is really unfounded because what really happened? The U.S. actually helped to rebuild a shattered Japan and turn Japan into a democratic ally after the war. How did the U.S. do that? Well, to begin that story, let's go back to the uh, Allied ceremony on board the USS Missouri at the end of World War II. The Allied powers gathered their representatives from each country that had fought with the United States, sent a representative on the deck of the USS Missouri to be there with General MacArthur, who was commander of Allied forces in the Pacific, with Admiral Nimitz, his colleague, and the Japanese sent a delegation to sign the documents of surrender with these U.S. dignitaries and allies. And what was that like? There were 11 members of the Japanese delegation that arrived for the surrender proceedings. One of the Japan's delegates, Toshikazu Kasa, was in charge of writing the official report for the imperial palace that the emperor would read. So Kasa is recording his impressions so that the emperor can read this. And he described how he just felt tortured with all those eyes on him on the deck of the USS Missouri. U.S. sailors were standing on every nook and cranny up and down the ship so that they could see what was happening. And sailors on neighboring ships had binoculars out and were watching. But Kasi said, we waited and I tried to preserve the dignity of defeat, but it was difficult and every minute contained ages. The Japanese delegation also suspected and expected 
tremendous retribution by the U.S. and its allies because the Japanese had attacked the United States at Pearl Harbor. They also had been tremendously cruel to civilians and military personnel who were captured. In some of the Japanese POW camps, over 50% of the men in prison there had died during the war. And the same numbers were often common in prisoner of war camps for uh, even uh, women and children throughout the Pacific, some in Java and other countries, terrible conditions. And the Japanese had devastated Manila as they departed from that city in the Philippines, killed thousands of civilians, murdered thousands of civilians. So the Japanese delegation is wondering what's going to be done to them by the U.S. And instead... General MacArthur steps to the microphone and says, quote, We are gathered here, representatives of the major warring powers, to conclude a solemn agreement whereby peace may be restored. MacArthur went on to say it would be inappropriate to discuss ideologies or to meet, quote, in a spirit of distrust, malice, or hatred. MacArthur also hoped that all present would rise to a higher dignity to work toward a world of faith and understanding dedicated to the dignity of man and the fulfillment of freedom, tolerance, and justice. As the Japanese delegation listened to these words, and as Toshikazu Keisa listened to these words, he was deeply moved. He wrote to the emperor, MacArthur can impose a humiliating penalty if he so desires, and yet he pleads for freedom, tolerance, and justice. For me, who expected the worst humiliation, This was a complete surprise. The ship's quarter deck was now transformed into an altar of peace. So now, instead of making a deeper enemy of Japan, the U.S. turns it into an ally and ushers in a new era in Japanese history. More rights for women, a better industrial base, and Japan eventually enters the economic world of producing cars, technology that all of the world wants with a democratic form of government that they had never had before. Thank you, Anita. And so the United States, in effect, gives aid to Japan after the war. Instead of retribution and hostility, we give aid. We give aid to the countries of Europe as well through the Marshall Plan. And the food we gave to the European countries, including Germany, after World War II saved, some estimates have it, as millions of Europeans. So the United States becomes a benevolent victor. You rarely see this in world history. Most of the time, the winners exact reparations and money from the losers. This is a rare time in human history. You have the victor, the United States, being benevolent toward those who were defeated. The textbook simply does not get into that information. On this subject of World War II, FDR, and textbook bias, I have two books that I want to recommend. One is Thomas Fleming, and the book is called The New Dealer's War. It's an excellent book. Another book that's quite good is by an economist, Robert Higgs. The book is entitled Depression, War, and Cold War. The last source I want to recommend to you is one that I constructed, which is a critique of the textbook, The American Pageant, by Kennedy and Cohen. This source is online, 
and it's at trueamericanhistory.us. This is a critique of the Kennedy and Cohen textbook, The American Pageant. And I'd urge you to look at it if you are being forced to read that textbook, or perhaps you have a son and daughter who may be reading that textbook. And that concludes today's episode of Books with Bert. Thank you all for listening. Be sure to subscribe and rate my podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Apple, or any other place where you get podcasts so you don't miss future episodes. If you liked today's episode and want to find more content to fill your heart with love for America and for conservative ideas, be sure to check us out at yaf.org. The conservative movement starts here. Until next time, keep reading.